There was a, a famous poet, John Keats, who said that a thing of beauty is a joy forever. A thing of beauty is a joy forever. Well, this passage we're looking at this morning is a thing of beauty. And I hope and pray that it would reveal to each one of us a fountain of eternal joy. This passage is so glorious. I was planning on preaching a longer passage, but there's so much here. We have to stop short and pick up next week. So sorry. Uh, sorry for the bulletin misprint. That's, that's just, if, if it's anybody's fault, it's the Lord's fault. There's just too much good stuff here. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be picking up the story in verse 17. If you're not used to using a Bible, you can find this on the Pew Bible or in the Pew Bible on page 868, 868. Now, just to remember the context, verses 1 to 16, Jesus sent out 72 disciples on a kind of short-term mission trip. And this morning in verse 17, they return. So let's pick up the story here in verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that hour, He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the son is except the father or who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Brothers and sisters, there's so much in this passage, but I just want you to to notice three things. In this passage, we find great joy greater joy and greatest joy. (laughs) We find great joy, greater joy, and then thirdly, the greatest joy. That that will serve as our outline, but again, we'll see where this goes. There's so much here, but ultimately the prayer I've been praying all week for you and for me is that we would see the joy of the Lord in this passage, that that joy would be our strength And that for those of us who know the Savior, that the Lord would restore to us the joy of our salvation. That's my prayer. So let's let's walk through this 
passage. I'll draw your attention to a few things and then we'll, we'll spend some time at the end thinking about some implications, okay? Number one, verses 17 to 19, we find great joy. That's, that's verses 17 to 19, great joy. If you look there in your Bible, verses 17 to 19, the 72 disciples, they return from this short-term mission trip and they make a joyful return. Look at verse 17. Don't look at me, look at your Bibles. The 72 returned with what? You'll have to wake up now. The 72 returned with what? Joy. joy. Do you see that? They returned with joy. They, they, they're happy when they return. They're, they're, they're filled with joyful excitement and enthusiasm. The mission trip, for the most part, has gone well. And they're excited and they're joyful. And they, they, they had been preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Some people had rejected them, but others had received the gospel. They were able to to demonstrate God's power through signs and wonders and healings and exercising demons. They'd been given authority to heal the sick, verse nine. They had done all of this in Christ's name and people had responded and they're excited, they're joyful. Verse 17, the 72 returned with joy, saying, notice what they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, this is striking because if you had asked someone who was Jewish in the first century who was living in Israel, if you had said to someone, hey, who's the biggest enemy you face in Israel? The answer would have been easy. It would have been the Romans. Those pagan idolaters who are occupying the land promised to Abraham. But when Messiah comes, he's going to wipe out those pagan Gentiles and set up his kingdom. The, the occupying force that the first century Jew wanted out was the Romans. But when the Messiah of God appears... And he sends out his messengers. He doesn't kick out the Romans. He reveals there's a worse problem in Israel than Rome. There are the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places who are occupying Israel. And so Jesus, King Jesus, demonstrates through his messengers that there is a, another kingdom besides the Roman Empire that you need to be dealt with, right? It's the kingdom of darkness. And so he sends out his messengers and it's kind of like show and tell, right? They, they, they tell of the kingdom and Jesus shows the power of the kingdom by taking out these demons, and so if you don't, if you think, well, wait a second, I'm not sure that's there. It's there. Here's, here's, my, here's my support. Just flip the page. Take your Bible, just flip the page. Look at it. Luke chapter 11, verse 20. This is when they, they basically accused, Jesus' opponents accused him of being demon possessed. Remember this? And listen to what he says. Listen to how he connects this casting out of demons to the establishing of his kingdom and the overthrow, over, overthrow of Satan's kingdom. Look at verse 20. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, 
Then what? The kingdom of God has come upon you. And then he gives an illustration. Verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. You see that? Jesus is describing, as it were, what's happening with all of these demon exorcisms and stuff. Jesus is showing I'm the strong man, not Satan. This is my king kingdom, not his. This is my land, not his. This is my world, my universe, not his. That's what's happening in this ministry of the 72. And so they come back. I want you to have this image in your mind. I don't know about you all. I'm sure everyone in here, at least throughout the week, is, is getting updates about what's happening in Ukraine, Right? You probably check hourly or maybe at least a couple times a day. We get updates about what's going on. Think of the 72 coming back. It's kind of like soldiers coming back from the front lines, bringing good news from the front lines. They're coming back and they're announcing that this spiritual battle that Jesus is engaged in, that the strong man, the Lord Jesus Christ is winning. Now, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says, hey, look, your your joy about your mission trip, that's great. But I want to connect that to an even better source of joy. Notice what he does in verses 18 and 19. Jesus connects their success on the mission field to something he is going to do. Verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Verse 19, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Now, what does he mean when Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning? I'm not going to give you 50 interpretations. Here are the three main ones, and I'll, I'll tell you the right one, right? First one, first view is, is some people take this to mean this is Jesus speaking about the, the time before creation, right? So the pre-incarnate Christ is describing what he saw as the eternal son of God when Satan, a fallen angel, fell from heaven. That's one interpretation. I don't think that fits the context. Number two, others refer to this. Jesus is saying, I saw Satan fall from heaven. And he's speaking of something that had just recently happened. That as they, the 72, were preaching the gospel and people were believing and the the kingdom was growing, that that's when Satan fell, as it were, from heaven. That the the connection is between the, the mission of the 72 and their success. And that was kind of uh, pictured as Satan falling. And I don't think that's quite right either because the mission of the 72 is uh, not a big enough deal, as it were, to countenance that type of response. The other reason I don't think that's what Jesus is saying is Satan's pretty active before and after the mission of the 72. 
I mean, in, in chapter 22, Jesus goes to Peter and says, hey, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Uh, that doesn't sound like he's really you know, lost any power at that point, right? I understand. This is the best interpretation. This is why I think it's the right interpretation. This is it's the simplest one. When Jesus says, I saw Satan, so I saw Satan fall from heaven. That word, that, that, that very word, I saw, that happens in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Daniel, anytime someone is seeing a vision. Anytime there's any kind of prophecy, what happens is the prophet says, I saw, and he tells you the vision. And so I understand what Jesus is saying here is this. Jesus is not describing something that happened before creation. He's not describing something that just happened when the disciples returned. He's looking forward to the future. And he says, I saw, and he tells them the vision of what he saw. What did he see of the future? Namely, Satan falling from heaven. Now, he doesn't tell us when in this verse it's going to happen. It's just in the future. But later, this is what Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John. John chapter 12, verse 31. When was Satan decisively cast down, right? It was at the cross. It was at the cross. John chapter 12, verse 31. These are Jesus' own words. Right before he goes to the cross, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast down. And when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. At the cross of Christ, Satan is dealt by Christ the decisive death blow. There's, there's a day coming when he will end Satan forever, right? And toss him in the lake of fire. But the decisive victory over the spiritual forces in the heavenly places happens at the cross of Christ. At the cross, Satan, the devil, the accuser of the brethren, the God of this age, the ancient serpent, he goes by lots of different names, was thrown down. Paul puts it this way. What happened to Satan and his host at the cross? Paul says in Colossians 2, on the cross, listen, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So while the world looks at the cross and sees a big loss, the scriptures look at the cross and they see that as a shining victory for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Satan remains a mighty foe, but he is a defeated foe. He's a defeated foe. It's, it's over. It's just a matter of time. Satan is a mighty foe. He's a lion. He's a ravenous lion, but he's on a leash, right? Whatever accusation the accuser of the brethren had on you, if you're trusting in Christ, all of his accusations fall short because you're justified by God. All of his accusations of guilt and sin will not land on you anymore because of what Christ has done on the cross. And so Jesus sees this future heavenly reality, the victory he's going to secure, and he communicates that to 
his 72 disciples. He says that this earthly victory that you saw on your mission trip, it's just an echo of what's going to happen when I defeat him on the cross. And so Jesus says they have, they have power. Notice over all the power of the enemy, nothing shall hurt you. Verse 19, he even references this, this, this in the same context. He references treading on serpents. Do you see that? Well, what does that make you think of? When was there a promise in the Old Testament that someone was going to get their head crushed, right? The serpent, Genesis 3.15, it's an echo of this promise of victory that the seed of the woman was promised over the serpent and the seed of the serpent. So what is Jesus doing then? Jesus is helping his disciples see that whatever joy they have in this successful mission trip, is not due to their strength or their wisdom. It's due and it's based on his own saving authority and work. And brothers and sisters, the reason this is important for us as a church is that we get the same confidence in our efforts and missions that they do. We don't have this, the, the unique authority that Christ gave them during his earthly ministry but we're trusting in the same omnipotent Christ. So when Jesus, before he sends us out in the great commission, what does he say? All what? Authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, what? Go. So we're we're commissioned out into the world by the one who has all authority. He's the head. He's at the top. He's ruling and reigning over all things. And so the same authority that Christ has and commissions these 72, he sends us out again. That's why that glorious promise is, he said, I will build my church. And what? The gates of what? Hell shall not prevail against it. Hell can't stop the gospel. Satan can't stop the gospel. Demons can't stop the gospel. It will go forth because Christ has all power and authority. And so Jesus takes their joy in their circumstances, and he roots it in a greater joy, in a greater victory. But that's not it. That's not more. There's more joy. Look at verse 20. That was great joy. Here's greater joy. Look at verse 20. In verse 20, Jesus reveals the joy behind the joy. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 20. This This is a crazy verse. Imagine, like, so Kyle just got back from a a mission trip and he's excited. What if I told Kyle, Kyle, don't rejoice in your mission trip. (laughs) There's something else you should be rejoicing in. Well, look what he says in verse 20. Nevertheless, or however, do not rejoice in this, namely that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice in this, that your names are, are written in heaven. Now, it's okay to say amen or amen at this church. This is, this is astounding. As astounding, I mean, imagine going on a, on a mission trip and you see people saved, people receive the gospel, there's exorcisms, there's healings going on, and, and they come back and Jesus says, there's actually something behind that that's even greater. He says, your names are written in heaven. That that phrase are written, a couple things. That's used to describe being enrolled in a citizen list. 
in the first century. That, that, that's a word that carries the sense of being enrolled in the citizen list of a city or a nation. So remember in Luke chapter 2. Remember Caesar Augustus had a what? A census. He had everyone go to the town where they are what? To be registered. They got to put their name on a list. Because Caesar wants to know how many subjects he has. He wants to know how many people are in my realm. How many people are a part of my kingdom. Right? Well, Jesus says... You have a name as a Christian and it's written in heaven. There's a book in heaven with your name on it. You have a citizenship and all the privileges of membership in the city of heaven, in the kingdom of heaven. All your rights, all your property, all your inheritance, everything is secured because your name is written in heaven. Jesus points his disciples from joy to greater joy. He doesn't say your joy rests upon your ministry experience or your ministry accomplishments or anything you ever will do ever in your life for the, for the sake of Christ. He says, take all of that I'm going to tell you something greater than that. Your name is written in heaven. You're a citizen of heaven. Christian, many of you, I imagine all of you probably are citizens of this country. But Jesus wants you to know that right now, this very moment, you you have dual citizenship. Philippians 3.20, you're a citizen of heaven. The king of heaven. Now, if I were to go down to the, to the mall and talk to anyone in our Congress or even someone in the White House, no one knows my name, right? Now, I know some of you know people that serve in the, in the Congress or the Senate, but we're, we're, we're not that important, right? But this passage is saying the king of heaven knows your name. The king of heaven knows your name. He remembers your name. He knows that you belong to him and he has an inheritance that's waiting for you. Revelation 13 says this, your name was written before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life. Listen to what Jesus says in Revelation 3 verse 5. I will Never. This is anyone who trusts in him. I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. You and I may be nobodies here. We are nobodies. But Christian, you can rejoice in this. At this very moment, your name is written in heaven. At this very moment, your name is on the lips of the king of heaven. Your name is being joyfully confessed by Jesus Christ before his father and before all the angels of heaven. Your name is written 
in the Lamb's book of life. And so no matter what we are going through, no matter what challenges we face or trials we endure, Jesus says, you must remember, Christian, to rejoice because your name's written in heaven. Now, how did your name get in that book? How'd your name get in that book? Well, that brings us to the last The last section, verses 21 and 22, we go from great joy to greater joy to the greatest joy. The greatest joy, verses 21 and 22. And look at verse 21 and 22. This is amazing. What we find in these closing verses, we find the Savior himself rejoicing. It's one thing for the disciples to rejoice, but notice there in verse 21, Christ's response of joy, okay? Look, look at it again. At that same time or in that same hour, your Bible may say, at that very moment, Jesus rejoiced. Do you see that? Now, if you write in your Bibles, you should probably write in your Bible, underline that. Even if it's the Pew Bible, that's okay. Now, why do I say, why do we stop here? Big deal, Jesus rejoiced. This is the only time in the whole Bible we're ever told that Jesus rejoiced. Now, we're only only told three times that Jesus wept, right? I don't think that Jesus only cried three times. And I don't believe that Jesus only rejoiced one time. But this is the only time in all the Bible, explicitly, in his earthly ministry, that we're told that Jesus Christ rejoiced. And why was he rejoicing? Did you notice the context? Think about it. They've returned and told him that people received the kingdom. And Jesus rejoices. What caused Jesus to rejoice? What caused Jesus to thank his heavenly father? The salvation of sinners. Isn't that amazing? So what what was the reason? Look at verse 21. Jesus rejoiced, notice, in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding or the intelligent and revealed them to little children. Jesus rejoices in the salvation of sinners. He rejoices that there were those who heard the gospel of the kingdom and God revealed the message of the kingdom to them and they believed, they received it. Jesus caused them, he says, like little children. So remember a few weeks ago when we talked about children in the first century among the Jews, they, they weren't that big of a deal. They were often overlooked. They, they had no rights. They were kind of despised in one way. So Jesus is saying by comparing the wise and the discerning with little children, he's talking about those who are despised, the weak, the lowly, the insignificant in the eyes of the world. They received it. But Jesus says it was hidden to those who are wise and understanding, those who are wise in their own eyes. Think about for the most part, most of the spiritual leaders in Israel at that time rejected Christ. 
The people who were the wise guys in Israel rejected Jesus for the most part. There were some exceptions. Joseph of Arimathea, right? The apostle Paul, the apostles, obviously. But but for the most part, those who were in the authority rejected Christ. Thank God you don't have to have have a PhD to be a Christian. Now, I praise God for PhDs, right? I praise God for bright people who are Christians. We, I'm glad. There, there are many people that I look at and I think, thank the Lord they're on team Jesus, right? I'm grateful. But that's not a prerequisite. You don't have to have wealth or royalty to be a Christian. Now, we, we read about this earlier. Remember what Mary said when God told her she was going to be the mother of the Messiah? She not only rejoiced in God, her savior, but do you remember what she thanked God for? It wasn't just that God had brought forth the savior. She praised God and rejoiced in God for how he went about doing that. She said, you, she rejoiced in God because chapter one, verse 51, God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and he has exalted those of humble estate. This isn't just Jesus rejoicing. Did you notice this is Trinitarian joy? (laughs) Jesus, the Holy Son of God incarnate, rejoices in the Holy Spirit by giving thanks to God the Father. I mean, we, we've gone into the deep end now. We, we, we were in the shallow end doing backstroke. Now we have gone down. We're down at the bottom of the deep end. And we get down to the deep end and it's, it's just bottomless. We keep going. This is Trinitarian joy. The father has planned. The son comes to purchase and the spirit of God applies his salvation. And Jesus says, this is what I'm rejoicing in. This is infinite divine joy. The joyful heart of Christ and the salvation of sinners is a reflection of the eternal heart of God to rescue sinners. If you want to know what God is like, look at Christ. I mean, isn't that amazing? The one time we find him rejoicing, he's rejoicing that sinners have been saved. It's amazing. Knowing what he knows, knowing what he knows that it's going to have to happen for that to happen, he's still rejoicing. But he plunges us even deeper. We think we've gotten to the bottom. Look at verse 21, the end, at the end of the verse. For yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Your Bible may say for such was your good pleasure. You see that? Jesus wants his disciples to not only rejoice that we are saved, he wants us to rejoice in how we are saved. Listen, Jesus rejoices that God has chosen to save a people whose names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world Jesus rejoices that he's chosen to save a people in such a way that humbles man and exalts God. Jesus rejoices 
that God has chosen the foolish in the eyes of the world in order to shame the wise and the weak in the world in order to shame the strong and the nobodies of the world in order so that nobody boasts in the presence of God. He, He has saved a people in such a way to humble man and exalt God. If some of you will not be in this church, your job will take you someplace else. You want to be in a church that's preaching the Bible. And one of the ways you can know if the people are preaching the Bible is that man is humbled and God is exalted. Because from beginning to the end, that's what we find. God is to be exalted and man is to be humbled. If you're ever in a church that lifts man above God, that's called a cult and you need to get out. Jesus rejoices that you and I ultimately are not saved because of our will, but because of God's gracious will. It's not because of our efforts. It's because of God's good pleasure. Now, you might be thinking, well, yeah, pastor, but, you know, we still have to repent. We still have to believe we're not robots and we're not. We have a will. We choose to accept Christ. Yes. But Jesus is saying those people that responded to the gospel in those villages, Jesus is taking you behind their response. What's behind? What's behind? When you heard the gospel and believed, was it because you were wiser than your friends? Was it because you were better than your friends? Was it because someone else in your family wasn't smart enough to believe? No. Jesus is going behind all of that. And Jesus is saying, God's grace, his sovereign good pleasure is the ultimate foundation of our joy. And it's the ultimate foundation of our salvation. Listen to the way Paul puts it. This is is Jesus talking. Now listen to the way Paul puts it because he uses the same word that Jesus uses. I think Paul got this from Jesus. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we might be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to his purpose, according to his good pleasure. That's what Jesus says. And Paul says the same thing in Ephesians one. Now we we have gotten to hit rock bottom, right? There's, There's only 10 minutes left in the service. So maybe we've hit rock bottom. No, Jesus goes even deeper. Jesus is going to reveal next Something even more deeper, that that your ultimate joy isn't just that you are saved. It isn't simply how you are saved. The rock bottom foundation of your joy, Christian, is in God himself. Look again at verse 22. This is amazing. Now, you really should underline this this verse. All this is astounding. All things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows who the son is except the father or who the father is except the son and anyone 
to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Look at these two staggering claims. First, geez, do you see that this is the most explicit verse in the entire Gospel of Luke of Jesus' claim to divinity? Listen to this claim. All things have been delivered or handed over to me by my Father. Think about that. All things. What does all things mean in the, in the Greek? It means all things. Creation, providence, salvation, anything you name, everything's been handed over to the Son by the Father. It's astounding. There isn't a patriarch or a prophet or an apostle who ever used words like these. Please, if you're not a follower of Jesus, don't ever make the mistake of thinking that Jesus himself taught he was just some religious teacher who said some controversial things and got himself killed. Jesus is saying right here, everything that God has, he's handed over to me. All things have been given to me by my father. And then he says that he's the one who reveals himself to us. Look what he says. He's distinct from his father, yet he's entirely one with him. Jesus knows the father. The father knows the son perfectly, intimately. And then he makes this second claim. No one knows who the father is except the son. And anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. That's amazing. Who is the one who alone reveals God, the father, to men and women. Jesus. If, if, if you're someone who knows Jesus and you're following Jesus, you've trusted in Jesus. Do you know what happened? Jesus revealed the father to you. Jesus revealed himself to you. John says it like this. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the father's side he has made him known. John 1, 18. Brother and sister, someone preached the gospel to you. Someone brought the good news of the gospel to you. This, this ought to encourage us to be spreading the good news wherever we go. But behind your repenting, behind your believing, behind all of that, Christ revealed himself to you. He's the one who began a good work in you and he promises to, to carry it to completion until the day of Christ. Amen. So brothers and sisters, the, the, the only response to this passage, there's a twofold response, but they both have to do with rejoicing. They both have to do with joy. So the, the, the twofold response, this is a passage that's brimming with joy. So let me just close with two implications. First, number one, rejoice because your salvation is utterly secure. Rejoice because your salvation is utterly secure. Amen. We live in uncertain times, don't we? It just feels like everything's changing all the time. And yet in this passage, we're reminded we are not made right by God by doing works. We're not made right with God by ministry. No matter how great your ministry is, 
You're not reconciled to God through ministry. Nothing should cause us more joy than this glorious fact that your name has been written by God in the Lamb's book of life and nothing will ever blot your name out. That should cause you to rejoice. It should cause you to rejoice, especially this morning, Christian, if you are struggling in the midst of trials. The apostles consistently call Christians who are going through trials to rejoice in the Lord. And you may read those verses at times and you think that doesn't seem very pastoral or maybe it doesn't even seem possible to you. But I guarantee that some of us in this room, maybe all of us who have walked through with Christ through challenging times, even the worst of times, you have tasted the joy of the Lord. You have known his nearness. When you've walked through the valley of the shadow of death, you've known that you're his. And his spirit has ministered to you. And you know, you know, even though you haven't seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you're filled with glorious joy because you're receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Your salvation is secure because it's not tethered to your changing and shifting circumstances. Our joy at times is is fixed on circumstances and it looks like the NASDAQ. But Jesus is tethering our joy to himself. He's the author and perfecter of our joy. That's why, listen, Jesus said this to his disciples right before he went to the cross and he knew they were gonna be devastated when it happened. And Jesus made this promise. John 16, verse 20. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. You will have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, let me ask you, friend, Where is your ultimate source of joy? C.S. Lewis wrote a book, a little essay called The Weight of Glory. And he talked about we're we're far too easily pleased. We're far too easily pleased. And he connected in that passage, in that essay, that there's a joy that can be yours that's eternal. Eternal. Because Jesus says, for all who turn from their fleeting pleasures of sin and they come to the Savior, to Jesus Christ by faith alone, when they receive him, the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, died, rose again, and is now seated at God's right hand. For all who receive Christ, he promises we will go through challenging times. But he promises to give us joy today in the midst of our challenges. 
And he promises that there's a joy given that no one will be able to take away. Neither death, nor life, nor principalities or powers, nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is a gift secured from the Savior who endured hell on the cross to bring that eternal joy to undeserving sinners. Will you trust him? Will you trust him? Christian, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. I remember reading this passage this week during my Bible reading plan. I'm, all, I'm in all different parts of the Bible. And I was reading in Exodus 28 instructions to Aaron about the high priest. Remember what the high priest would do once a year? They'd go into the Holy of Holies and they'd have to get dressed up before they go in. Right. They had a turban they had to wear. And what did the high priest of Israel wear on his chest? He went into the Holy of Holies to offer a sacrifice for himself and for the sins of the people one time a year. And on his chest engraven there are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. We sang earlier this morning, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands and my name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within upward, I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. And because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Christian, rejoice. Rejoice that your name's written in heaven. But secondly and finally, rejoice that your salvation is utterly gracious. Imagine if God said in his word, I'll save you, I'll save you, but you got to work for it. We'd, we'd never know. I mean, every religion in the world says do all this stuff and you have the hope of being accepted by whoever they say God is, right? Our, our, friends, our, our, our friends who are Muslim, they have an angel on their left shoulder, an angel on their right shoulder and count up all the works they do. And then when they stand before Allah, he might let them into paradise. There's no assurance. There's no promise. But Jesus is crystal clear that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all for the glory of God alone. Christian, listen to me. If you could lose your salvation, you would. If you could lose your salvation, you would. But you can't. Because your name's written in heaven and God's the one who wrote it there. You weren't saved by the works of your hands. Your salvation doesn't rest upon the works of your hands. 
Your salvation and your eternity rests in the nail-pierced hands of Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners. And so, brothers and sisters, we should rejoice. Whatever is going on in the world, whatever is going on in your home, whatever is going on in your job, whatever is going on with your health, Christian, Jesus loves you. And he wants you to know this morning you have ample reasons to rejoice. We read earlier, as we close, this is what God is doing right now over his people. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. And he will quiet you by his love and he will exult over you with loud singing. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly father, Lord, we thank you that you didn't save your people grudgingly. You didn't save your people in a fashion or in a way that you had to just grin and bear it. Lord, you have revealed yourself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as the God of infinite joy, a God who delights to save and save to the uttermost. Oh God, we rejoice in you. We delight in you. Restore to us this day the joy of our salvation, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.